Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these ancient words that were written down on purpose that your people throughout all the ages might be able to hear from you, to know what our story is, to know what your story is, and and to be able to know you most importantly. And so, Lord, I pray as we spend another Sunday looking at Abram's travels and experiences that we would recognize that you are the main character of this episode. You are the main character of every story. And so, Lord, may you fix our eyes on you, I pray. Help us to know the God of Abram as we encounter you in your word this morning. And, Lord, I'm asking for the power of your Holy Spirit to cause our hearts to come alive and to receive your words with faith this morning and that you would cause us to have the same faith that Abram had and to walk in the same faith that Abram walked in. And Father, I pray that you would do this for your glory here and wherever we go. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can have a seat. We usually refer to Abram as Abraham because that's what his name changed to. Um, Really working at saying Abram properly every time we see the word. And so when we actually get to Abraham, we're going to have to have to relearn how to say his name. And that's, uh, well, that's what he would have had to do. As, we, as we're working through the book of Genesis, you may remember a few weeks ago when we uh, read about the Tower of Babel, where God confused the language of the world, people suddenly had different words for the same thing. Language can be confused in other ways, too. One of the other ways that language can be confused is when people use the same word to talk about different things, right? So you can have the sa- different words for the same thing or the same word for different things. And I was thinking about this yesterday, uh, where people use the same word to talk about different things in relationship to the word faith. I got an email from someone yesterday who uh, advertises themselves as the leader of a faith community, and I'm pretty sure that um, we use the word faith uh, pretty differently from each other. Uh, and and I, I was just thinking about the way that, that, that the word faith is often used in our world today. Faith in our world today is very often a set of personal beliefs about the supernatural realm. And your faith is important to you. It's there to help you stay positive when life gets hard. But what's very important is that word personal. It's just a personal faith. You're allowed to believe whatever you want to believe. You're allowed to have faith in whatever you want to have faith in. You're even allowed to practice some form of religion as long as you keep it to yourself. It's kind of like a hobby. That's the way I think many people in our world today look at faith. It's very much like a hobby. People have hobbies, and that's fine. I mean, whatever whatever floats your boat, man. But when it comes to the course of your life, major decisions you make, relationships with others, I mean, faith is kind of like stamp collecting. Like, don't take it too seriously, and certainly don't start shoving it down other people's throats. So I think that's a pretty common understanding of faith held by by many in our world today, but I hope you know that 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 has nothing to do, what I've just described, has nothing to do with the kind of faith that we see 
in God's word, in the Bible, the faith that we read about in scripture is not small and private. It's big, transformative. When we believe in God's promises and we have faith in God, it turns our entire lives upside down in very disruptive ways. Having faith in God in the Bible is less like picking up a new hobby and more like picking up and moving to a new country. And sometimes, literally, like with Abram, God came to him and showed up out of the blue and gave him some promises and told him what to do. And Abram had faith. And what did that mean? It means he got up and moved to a strange country and lived in tents for the rest of his life. That's what faith does, biblical faith does. Now, something else we need to understand about faith in the Bible is that faith is not just something you have or don't have. Faith in the living God, like many other things about us, can be weaker or stronger. It can grow. It can shrink. And we saw this last week in the story of Abram. After making an incredible step of faith in chapter 12, we get to the second half of chapter 12, And we see him make some really big mistakes. It's like, where'd your faith go, Abram? He acts as if God doesn't exist. He acts like an atheist. He acts like God never said anything to him. And he acts just like everybody else. And this shows us something really important about faith. It's not just whether you have it or not. I mean, there is a, a line there. But our faith is dynamic. And what we see today is things really turning around in today's passage. We see Abram return to faith, and then we see him once again start acting on his faith in some pretty incredible ways. And as always, we're going to see what this has to say to us in our modern world, to our own hearts in some really important ways. So you've got your hand out there in the bulletin, and we're going to start by looking at Abram's return to faith in verses 1 to 4 of this chapter. So, verse 1 says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had. Okay, we shouldn't take these words for granted. I mean, just think of how close they came to being in some really big trouble last week. So they made it out of Egypt. I mean, that's awesome. They, they, they made it out alive, him and his wife, and together with his nephew. They made it in one piece. And they come back into the Negev, which is the south of the Promised Land. Now, verse 2 tells us Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. That word for very literally is heavy. You know, Abram was laden, heavy laden with gold and with all these things. I mean, he, he did well in Egypt. Like Jordan said last week, he made out like a gangbuster. He, he did very well in Egypt. Now, what would you do in that situation? Come into a whole bunch of money that you weren't counting on? This is, this is like a winning the lottery kind of moment. What, what would you do? What do people in our world today tend to do when they come into a whole bunch of money? Well, we get a really important glimpse into Abram's heart here because the first thing Abram doesn't do is go on a big shopping spree. Instead, what does he do? He seeks the Lord. We see that in how he journeys on, verse 3, from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I. That word for journeying, again, just to know the, the, the very visual nature of the Hebrew language, talks about successive encampments, setting up camp, moving one camp at a time, all the way up 
to the last place where he had built an altar, the last place where he had called on the name of the Lord. And what does he do there? Verse 4, And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So you see what's happening here? Abram is going right back to the place where his relationship with God broke off. For him, it was very much connected to place. Bethel was the last place where he built an altar called on the name of the Lord. He, he makes it out of Egypt, and he makes a beeline back to pick up where he left off. This language of calling on the name of the Lord is so wonderful. In, in the Bible, it's a, it's a reference to prayer, but specifically, if we really dig into it, it's a reference to asking God to make good on his promises, asking God to fulfill his promises. And that's what Abram's doing here. God's made promises and he's calling on his name. Oh Lord, would you do what you promised? Would you do what you said? So after a season of wandering in Egypt, he's back on track. And he's doing what he was doing when he left off. He hit the ditch, but he's back on the road. And this just right here should be encouraging to those of you who maybe right now are praying for people you love who are in the ditch of faith right now. Don't be too quick to assume how their story's going to end, right? If we had just seen Abram in Egypt, we might have made some pretty harsh calls. Don't be too quick to assume how someone's story's going to end. Pray that the Lord brings whoever is on your heart in this regard. Pray that the Lord brings them back to Bethel. He did it for Abram, and he's done it for so many of his children so many times since then. Don't stop praying. And if and when the Lord answers those prayers, if and when the Lord brings the wanderer up from Egypt and back to Bethel, don't stop praying. Because isn't it so often that when we make a fresh start with the Lord or a fresh start in our walk of faith, that that faith gets tested with fresh challenges? I know I've experienced that a lot. I know I've seen it a lot. We get right with God and boom, we get tested. And that's pretty much what happens to Abram here. If we look now at our second step, which is Abram and Lot's conflict, Abram is back on track, and what happens? Conflict with his nephew. Conflict with family. I'm sure none of you in this room have ever had conflict with your family, but Abram did, and what, uh, what we see here comes out of what we just ha- We've read this passage just a few minutes ago, verses 5 to 7, which talks about the fact that Abram was really rich, and Lot was really rich. And even though the famine's over, they both have a ton of livestock, and there's only so much grass to go around. There's only so much water to go around. Water would have been, in this land, would have been predominantly in wells, and there's only so many wells that were dug. There's only so many watering holes to bring your animals. The famine's over, but there's still not enough food because they now have just that much more to supply for and not only are they in, in having, uh, having a hard time finding enough for their animals, but verse 7 ends by reminding us, at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. It's not like Abram and Lot had this place to themselves. If they made a really big stink or if they became a nuisance or if they used up all the grass and water, then the people who already live there might start to be like, hey, who are these new guys? Who invited you to come and 
use up all of our resources. They're vulnerable to being plundered, especially because of how rich they are. They don't have cities to protect them. So here's Abram. He's back on the path of faith. He's calling on the Lord. He's trusting his promises. And now he's got this big problem to deal with. What's he going to do? Well, what do we know about Abram so far that might help us guess at what he's going to do? Well, we know from what he did in Egypt by now um, that if Abram forgets the Lord, he's very capable of throwing his family under the bus to save his own skin. Here, Pharaoh, take my wife. Don't, don't, don't take me. Okay? He's, he's very capable of, of doing that kind of thing. We also know that Abram knows that God promised this land to him. Lot had nothing to do with it. Lot is just a tag along. Lot's just along for the ride. God didn't promise the land to Lot. And Abram knows this. Abram also has seniority in the family. He's, he's the big man. He's the patriarch, right? Patriarch has to do with the rule of the father. He's, he's the patriarch here. He was the head of this family unit. He had all the rights, the privileges, and the authority that came with that. So Abram would be well within his rights and his track record to solve the situation by just telling Lot, his nephew, to just take off. He could totally do this. Get out of here, Lot. This land ain't your land. Go back to Egypt. Go back to Haran. I don't know. Just uh, stop eating my animal's grass. Leave me alone. He could do that. But he doesn't, does he? Empowered by faith, we find Abram in a very different spot than we found him in the last chapter. Instead of scheming to protect himself, like which is what he did in chapter 13, or sorry, the last part of chapter 12, instead of scheming to protect himself, Abram reaches out with a generous offer, just generous. That should just blow our minds. Verse eight, then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for, for we're kinsmen, you know, we're, we're, we're relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Isn't that incredible? Here's the land, Lot. Yeah, we need to separate, but don't go far. Take your pick. Whatever you pick, I'll, I'll go the other way. This is incredibly generous on Abram's part. Think of it like if you had guests living in your basement and, and you're starting to find there wasn't quite enough room for the two of you. So you said to them, you pick any part of this house you want. I'll take whatever's left. It's incredible. We're going to see later on that this is an offer empowered by faith. Abram can make this offer to Lot because he really does believe that God has promised him the land. So he doesn't have to grab it. He doesn't have to hold on to it because God has promised it to him. Short term, he doesn't have to fight for this himself. He can let this slide through his fingers because he really does believe that God's going to keep his word. Now we get to our fourth stop, D, Lot's selfish choice. 
What does Lot do with this? What, would you, what, what does Lot do with the offer? Hey, pick anywhere that you would like to live in this house. Well, Lot goes around and checks out the mattresses and picks the master bedroom for himself. Let's, let's just, before we get there, though, let's just think, um, if we were to wonder what's, what is Lot going to do, what do we know about Lot so far? What has the story so far told us about Lot? Well, not much, right? Lot has just been there. We haven't seen Lot do anything up until now. And that's actually pretty telling. Lot is a very passive character. He doesn't really do stuff. He just lets stuff happen to him. Right, right here, Lot should be taking the initiative to solve this problem between him and Abram. It, it, was, it should have been up to Lot to say, hey, Uncle, Uncle Abram, I, I know God sent you to this land and, and, and I'm just along with you, but I don't want to cause problems for you. This, this is your land, so uh, we'll go somewhere else. That's what Lot should have been doing. Instead, Lot just does nothing, just waits, waits for the problem to fix itself, waits for someone else to take the initiative Waits for the crisis to boil over. Waits for Uncle Abe to step in and fix things. Like his father Adam before him, and like so many men after him, Lot is passive when he should be active. Lot takes a break when he should be taking the initiative. Lot waits for other people to act when he should be stepping up to the plate. And we're going to see, just in case you think I'm being too hard on Lot, this is a pattern that continues through the rest of his very sad life. And we're going to see this gets him into really big trouble in the chapters ahead. Passivity kills. Now what about right now? Okay, So yeah, he should have taken some initiative to fix this. He should have tried to be responsible for the fact that he was really cramping Abraham's Abram's space. And he's just been given this generous offer from his uncle. And this offer, it should shame him. He should be ashamed. Like, oh my goodness. Here I am, just along for the ride with you. God sent you here. I'm just, I'm just with you. And, and you just offered me my pick of the land? Oh. He should be thinking, God sent you to this land. You're the family head. No, no, Uncle, uncle Abram, you pick first. If, I mean, if you're even okay with me staying in the land, I'll, I'll take what's left, right? When the owner of the house says, pick wherever you want to live, you, you don't say, oh, sure, I'll take the master bedroom. No, you say, no, this is your place. I'll, I'll, I'll be happy with whatever you give me. But that's not what Lot does. That's not what Lot does. Verse 10 starts by telling us Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. That's what verse 10 says. So Abram's learning how to walk by faith. Lot is still walking by sight. And from the high ground where they are, if you look on a map, you can see Bethel's kind of up high and they can look down. Lot looks down and sees the Jordan Valley, which has a river. Okay, remember, they've just been through a a, a famine. Okay, so water is like really awesome, especially because very likely one of the challenges was there wasn't enough water for all their animals here. Okay, water's a big deal. He sees, he sees the Jordan River flowing through this valley, and it says that it looks to him like the Garden of the Lord. That's a reference to Eden. Actually, uh, this is an important connection between Eden 
and the promised land that's going to come up later on as God has given a place for his people. But at this point, um, he just thinks, man, this is amazing. And so Lot, like the kid at the party who takes the biggest piece of cake for himself, chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. I can have anything I want. I'll take that. And grabs the best for himself. Chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Thanks, uncle. I remember, I don't want to just throw a lot under the, under the bus here, but this reminds me of, of a story a friend of mine told me. They went to a barbecue, and everybody was told, bring your own meat. So everyone brought meat, and the meat all went on the grill together. And one family brought steak. Another family brought a 12-pack of those little thin hot dogs. You know where the story's going, right? All the meat went on the grill together, and when the time came to serve up, hot dog family said, Mmm, steak, that looks good, and took all the steak for themselves. And steak family came and said, Okay, and they had hot dogs. Um, That's kind of what Lot's doing here. Sure, I'll take the best for myself. I mean, don't we just know that's just kind of inappropriate? That's just, that's just, just taking the best for yourself is just, just not appropriate. But beyond that, there's at least five pointers in the passage here for why Lot is making a really, really bad decision. Number one, haven't we seen a pattern in Genesis of people seeing nice looking things with their eyes and taking them for themselves? And it almost never works out good for them. From Eve in the garden to the situation with the Nephilim to uh, there's one more here in my in my notes. You can look at look look on the notes and, and look it up. Uh, well, uh, Pharaoh's men looking at Sarai and then taking her. This this pattern is what the New Testament refers to as the lust of the eyes, and we see something good and we want it. This is why flyers, this is why Amazon's website is so dangerous. Oh, that looks nice. Click, I want that. Okay, this is an ancient problem. And, and Genesis telling us that um, by now Genesis has prepared us with three stories to know that Lot seeing something nice and wanting it, we should be thinking, warning, warning, warning. Second, verse 10 says that the Jordan Valley looked like the land of Egypt. That should be a bit of a warning after what just happened in Egypt, Right? Third, verse 10 finishes up by saying, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, cue the scary music. Right? This is like, it's like the moment where it's like, you know in a, in a, how a movie will warn you that something bad is coming when all of a sudden the music gets a little scary and you're like, ooh, what's coming? Okay, that's like what's going on here. Lot loves this place. Oh, this was before two of their major cities got destroyed with fire from heaven. There's some bad stuff that's coming. Number four, verse 11 contains another warning. Interestingly, when it says Lot journeyed east. So this is interesting. This is another pattern in Genesis. Ever since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, they left going eastward. And since then, there's been this pattern in the, in the book of Genesis that when we see someone moving east, it's almost always not good. The, the, the settlers going to Babel were going east. So, so that's just another thing here, that traveling east has this sort of negative feeling in the book of, negative flavor to it in the book of Genesis. And fifth, verse 12 says, when they separated, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom, another kind of scary, uh, scary music moment. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners, against the Lord. 
So uh, looks can be deceiving, right? That's why it's so, so dangerous to just see something nice and just want to take it for ourselves because looks can be really deceiving. By trusting his eyes and by taking the best for himself, Lot has made a really, really bad choice here. And the next few chapters are going to unpack all that this means for him. And we're going to see just even next week. And, and spoiler alert, it doesn't, doesn't work out well for him. But here's the thing. As we get back to Abram, no one knows any of this right now. Lot doesn't know this. Lot thinks he just won the lottery. It's happy soundtrack music playing. You know, he's got his happy soundtrack on as, as he's riding off to, to his new home in the valley. And maybe it's sad music playing for Abram, who's being left behind where water is more scarce and things aren't quite so sunshiny. Abram doesn't know that bad things are coming for Lot. Abram doesn't know that he's actually made the better choice. Abram just took a big risk. And as far as Abram is concerned, he just gave away a big chunk of his inheritance. I mean, did, we don't even know. Did Abram expect Lot to take him up on his offer? I mean, maybe it was a risk. But he took the risk. And there goes the best. Is Abram regretting it now? Have you ever had generosity regret if you've given a big gift you've done something awesome and then you think oh it's not hard to imagine Abram feeling disappointed discouraged or even just kind of lost right now what next and it's here after his big step of faith after He's just signed off a big chunk of his inheritance. It's here that the Lord meets him and speaks to Abram again. Now, we don't know how often the Lord spoke to Abram, recorded in scripture. Sometimes there were years in between. But here, the living God comes to speak to Abram. Isn't it, isn't it so often true that it's after we've stepped out in faith, after we've obeyed, that we find the assurance that we were looking for? This is one of the questions in your study guide has to do with this pattern. So often we think, well, I'm going to wait to obey until God assures me. Very often that's not how it works. We step out in faith and we obey and there the Lord meets us with the assurance that we were hoping for. And so it is here with Abram in this spot of being left behind Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, after, lift up your eyes. Okay, what did Lot do? Lot lifted up his eyes and saw it. Now here Abram's doing it, but it's good because the Lord is telling him to. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Okay, now think back. Abram said to Lot, pick a direction and I'll pick the other direction. And listen to how God completely overrules that. As he tells Abram, look in every direction. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So in other words, no, no, it's not going to be Lot's. That chunk that Lot just took is not going to be his. All of this is going to be yours and your offspring. Because I said so. Right? God is the real owner of heaven and earth. He overrules what just happened. And he's promised to give this to Abram. Back in chapter 12, verse 7, God told Abram he was going to give the land, this land, to his offspring. And, and here he's, he's expanding that, defining it a little bit more. Whatever you can see, Abram, going to be yours. 
This is all going to belong to you. So here's this reassuring promise of the land. Next, God repeats to Abram the promise of offspring. Verse 16. Back in chapter 12, Abram was told he'd become a great nation. That was about it. And he's going to have offspring. But here in verse 16, the promise gets more specific. God repeats and, and strengthens the promise when he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Uh, dust is everywhere, and, and you can't count it. Uh, parents, if you want a creative discipline idea, uh, have your kids count the dust in their room. Actually, don't. That would be cruel and unusual punishment, okay? And, and, and we get, though, right? This is how dust, dust works. And God says to Abram, that's going to be like your offspring. You're not going to be able to count them. You don't even know where to start. You're going to be everywhere and uncountable. Remember, how many kids does Abram have at this point? He's got no kids, so just, just remember that. And then, but third here, what we see is the Lord reassures Abram is the legal transfer in verse 17. And it's something we might not get when we just read it in English. The Lord says to Abram, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land. So again, all directions, for I will give it to you. So this, in the ancient Near East, this is legal language. This is what you did when you transferred land from one person to the next, is that person would walk through the length and breadth of the land, or they'd walk around it. And, and walking around the land was their way of basically staking their claim, this is mine. So this is basically, in the legal language of the day, this is like God handing Abram a contract or, or a, a, a sales bill and say, okay, sign there to make this official. Sign here to acknowledge receipt of this promise. Walk through the length and breadth of the land because it's going to be yours. This as far as heaven is concerned, this promise of the land is a done deal. It's signed and it's sealed. But it's not quite delivered yet, right? Signed, sealed, delivered, not quite delivered. God said, all the land you see, I will give to you and your offspring. He didn't say when. Abram was still a foreigner living in a tent, no fixed address. But in faith and obedience, he gets up. And so we're now here at the final stop, Abram's response of faith, point F. We're, we don't know how much of the land Abram traversed, but he gets up and he ends up south near Hebron by the oaks of Mamre. Now, Mamre was a person who comes up in the next chapter. So when he says oaks of Mamre, there's actually a person there named Mamre. So this even here is a reminder that Abram's not alone in this land. He doesn't have this land to himself. He's living among other people, but he trusts the promise. And what's he do in verse 18? He builds an altar to the Lord. This chapter ends in a similar way with how it opened. Remember, it opened. Abram comes out of Egypt, beelines it to Bethel, and there he worships the Lord at a place where an altar was built. And here, at the end of the chapter, in a new place, he's once again building an altar, planting a flag, and he is worshiping in obedience the God of heaven. This is his land. And Abram worships while he waits. He's waiting, and he worships as he waits for the promise to be kept. So this is the next stage of Abram's journey, as Abram learns to walk by faith. And be, because this is Abram's journey, this is our journey. 
Like we've seen, if you know Christ, you are sons and daughters of Abram by faith, which means this is your testimony. This is your heritage. This is your story. And it's our story in more ways than one, right? It's not just that we are sons and daughters by faith of Abram, but it's that today we reenact Abram's story in so many different ways. We too, if you know the Lord, if you're one of his people, you too are walking through this world like a pilgrim, knowing that wherever you settle, it's not your final spot. Like Abram, we're waiting for our final home. And so we have a lot to learn from Abram about how to walk by faith today. And we're going to look at a key lesson from chapter 13 to help us walk by faith. But before we get there, before we kind of get to that kind of very personal side of things, I want to talk just a little bit more about the promise of the land, more f- from a big picture how to understand the Bible standpoint. Okay, so we're going to get to something personal. But before we do that, we just want to grapple just a little bit with the promise of the land. And, and we certainly aren't going to say everything we could say this morning. And we'll talk about these things probably some more in little bits and pieces in the coming weeks. But this is important because this really touches on how we understand the Bible, which is mega important because that affects everything. When we hear God saying to Abram, all the land you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And you think about land and you think about offspring, what do, you, what do you think about? I suspect that many Christians, when they hear this text, especially if they grew up in a home like I did, it doesn't take them very long to think about the state of Israel present day in the Middle East. Many Christians believe that it's these promises in Genesis which mean that the Jewish people today have a divine right to live in the land that they live in, in the land or the modern-day state of Israel. As we need to think about this, it's been this spring, 75 years since the modern state of Israel was founded. One of my favorite kid movies when I was a kid was the movie Exodus about some of the freedom fighters and who uh, were behind all of that. And there's no doubt that something amazing happened 75 years ago with the founding of the state of Israel. I mean, for a Jewish state to not just survive, but thrive after everything that's happened to the Jewish people in the last hundred years, like it is, it is, it is mind blowing. It's just incredible. Now, there are some Christians who take it further than that. There are also some Christians who I've met who take it really, really a lot further than that, and they make it sound like it's a Christian duty to support the government of Israel wholesale. You may have met people like this. There's that good Christians support the Israeli government and every decision they make 100%. All their politics, all their policies, Christians need to get behind it all. Now, that's very interesting because there's a lot of Jewish people who don't think that way. Uh, I took Religious Studies 101 at the University of Regina, and I had a Jewish professor who was a staunch critic of the Israeli government. Very, very interesting. She was very observant. You know, we, there was no class on Jewish festival days. She was, she was, uh, she was great. 
and, and yet a staunch critic of the Israeli government. And so one of the things I learned in that class is that loving the Jewish people and agreeing with everything the Israeli government does are not always necessarily the same thing. Now, there's more I could say about that, and I, I don't want to get sidetracked. What I really want to draw attention to this morning is just how careful we need to be. So please hear what I'm saying. Please hear what I'm not saying. What I am saying is how careful we need to be when we draw straight lines from a text like Genesis 13, 15, all the way to the modern-day state of Israel, as if there was nothing in between. Because there is something in between. Something really big in between. His name is Jesus. Some of you know where I'm going with this. All of redemptive history comes to a point in Jesus. But that that doesn't actually mean that it shrinks down. That's actually that through Jesus, the promises mushroom to reach their true and intended fulfillment. And what we can see in Christ, but even before Christ, already in the Old Testament, what we see is that the land promised to Abraham, to Abram at this stage, was always a promise that had growth baked into it. The vision for the Old Testament is that this land, this land of Israel was just a starting place for a kingdom that would one day include the whole planet. That's, that's, the, that's the prophetic vision of the Old Testament. One of the places we see this is Psalm 72, 8, which prays that the son of David, the royal king, will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay? The planet. That, that's, that's the vision. That's how big it goes. It was never just to be confined to those, those borders. And, and we can think of prophecies like in Isaiah 11, and they're, they're all over the place, which portray Jerusalem as capital city of the world with the Messiah reigning over the world. That's, that's the real vision of the Old Testament. And, and the Apostle Paul draws upon this vision in Romans 4.13. So listen to how Paul interprets these promises. When he writes about the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of what? The world. That's how Paul interprets this promise. The promises to Abraham are ultimately about the world, and those promises then are fulfilled in the offspring of Abraham, who is Christ, who today has all authority in heaven and on earth, and will one day rule over the new heavens and the new earth forever. So do you see here how these promises through Christ grow to reach their intended fulfillment? Now hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that the modern day state of Israel has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with those promises. I'm not saying that. There are different perspectives on where exactly the modern day state of Israel fits into that. And, and, and I th- we have more than one perspective in this church and that's a good thing. We can talk about those things. What should be clear though is that we can't just draw a straight line from Genesis 13 to the state of Israel and say that's all there is to it, because that's not all there is to it. These promises to Abraham flow through Christ and in Christ find their ultimate fulfillment in King Jesus ruling over the new creation. And what that means is that you and I have a place in these promises. Though most of us in this room here are Gentiles, I assume, 
we've been grafted in, although my mom was pretty sure my grandma was Jewish, which would be cool, but we've been grafted in to these promises made to Abraham. That language of grafting in comes from Romans 11, a chapter we're going to come back to in a few weeks because it's really important. Think again of Galatians 3.29. Okay? Ask the Apostle Paul, who are the offspring of Abraham? What's he say? Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Who are the heirs to these promises to Abraham? Those who are Christ's. And what that means is that this promise to Abraham this morning is for us. In Christ, we are heirs along with Abraham to the earth. Now, I know what I just said. What I just said is that if you know Jesus this morning, you are an heir to the world. The planet has been promised to you. And you might say, dude, that that sounds nuts. And I would say, take it up with Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who stood on a hillside in Galilee and said to this group of people standing around him, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit Finish it. The earth, right? We just read that this morning at the beginning of our service, and that wasn't a coincidence. We planned it. But this, this is the promise that Jesus gives. The meek, whoever they are. Remember in that group that Jesus was preaching to included Jew and Gentile. And the meek, those who come and find their hope in God and are transformed from the inside out, will inherit the earth. That's the promise. And so we get now to the second point here, the meek shall inherit the earth. And this is where it gets really personal because this promise, carrying forward the promises of Abraham when it gets to us, this promise of the land growing to include Gentiles, growing to include the planet, it's for us. And here's what's so great about this promise is that when you actually believe it, it helps you fulfill the condition. Here's what I mean by that. If you believe that, you've, that you are will inherit the earth, that will make you meek. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Believing that Jesus has promised you the earth has a very powerful way of making you meek. And if you want to, like, so meek means humble, not fighting for your rights. You want an example of meekness? You want an example of someone who is meek because they believe they will inherit the earth? Look at Genesis 13 and Abram in today's passage. Look at Abram. He believes that God has promised him this land, so he doesn't put up a fight with Lot. He didn't demand his rights. He doesn't complain when Lot took the better land. All the ways that we see Abram acting in our chapter today is just fleshing out and defining what meekness looks like. Generous, humble, not fighting for his rights. He was able to be generous by faith because he trusted in God's promise that he was going to inherit the land. He didn't know how big it was going to get. And here's the thing, folks. If you know Jesus, if you believe the gospel that the Son of God came down from heaven, lived the perfect life you've never lived, died on the cross to pay for all of your sins, rose from the dead to give you eternal life, reigns at the Father's right hand, and is coming back for you, and if that promise is yours and you have taken up your cross and are following Jesus by faith, staggering promises have been made to you just as staggering, if not more staggering, then we're made to Abraham. 
To you, it can be said, go outside, look, length, breath, walk around. To the people of God, this land has been promised. If we think of that in terms of the new creation, Think about some of these words that Jesus said in Revelation 2, 26 to 28. Think about them, and as, as you hear them, ask God to help you believe them. The one who conquers, this is Jesus, talking about conquering over, over sin and temptation and the world system and on all the ways that Satan tries to pull us away from, from God. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star which is most likely a reference to himself or think about this one from Revelation 21 behold the dwelling place of God is with men he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away do you believe those promises I really hope you do. do. Do you believe them? Because when we believe them, the same thing will happen with us as what happened with Abram. We'll be freed to be generous and meek. When we really believe that, that this life is just a little blip and there's a whole new creation coming for eternity and this land, this world, this universe has been promised to the children of God, then we won't get uptight when things get tough. We won't freak out when we suffer, even when we're persecuted. When society and culture and the government and even our neighbors starts making it hard for us to be Christians, we won't lash out or get snarky or walk around with chips on our shoulders and say, ah, don't tell me what to do, stupid person that we won't act those ways we instead will be free to be meek because we know right now we're strangers in this land as much as Abraham was and we'll be freed to be meek and generous and not fight for our rights as we wait for God to keep his promises we'll be free to walk the second mile free to pick up our crosses so I want to end as we think about taking this home with us, I want to end by asking two questions. First, is there any place in your life today where you're struggling with some of these things? So maybe, maybe it's discouragement. Maybe it feels like you got the bad end of the stick in some way. Maybe life has thrown something your way and, and it just it's not what you expected. Maybe it's a broken or a tense relationship or a lack of a relationship or struggling finances or struggling health or limited opportunities? Is there any place in your life today where you feel like Abram watching Lot trot off to greener pastures and you're just kind of standing there with, with a lump in your throat? Is, is, is there any place in your life where you feel like that today? Or, or maybe, maybe the struggles with temptation, the temptation to be like Lot, to want to go grab something good for yourself and forget all that God has said and done to walk by sight and not by faith. Is there any place in your life where that's a, any of these things are a struggle? Second question. Do you believe these promises of God? The promises we've just read. The other promises like the promise that he's with you. The promise that he's working all of the things in your life for good. The promise that because Jesus died and rose again for his people, he's coming to live with us forever. Do, do, do you believe? Do you believe those promises? 
how we need the Holy Spirit to come and to bring those promises close to our hearts. Because if these promises are just ink on a page and that's it, then Christianity will be our hobby and we'll just live like Lot. But if we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to make these promises come to life, that we actually believe them, receive them by faith, and we taste the goodness of them, then we're going to be free to follow in Abram's footsteps and to live a life of risky obedience to Jesus. So as we end here today, as we've considered, where are you struggling? Do you believe? Would you ask God to help you believe? Would you ask God not just to help you believe? Would you ask him to help the people around you to believe? Would you ask him to help your brothers and sisters believe? We're going to sing a song to each other here at the end. Would you ask God to help the other people in this room believe the words that we're hearing and singing? And then let's look to God to answer those prayers, to give us faith to receive these promises, and then to walk out of here in risky, meek, generous obedience as we wait to dwell with God forever in the new creation that he's promised. Oh, Lord, give us faith. I know, Lord, that coming here this morning and all the work that so many people have put into what happened here today and our time here, it's all a waste unless, God, by your spirit, you help your people to believe your promises. So we're we're just begging you to do that, Lord. And we're begging you, Lord, as you give us faith, faith that comes by hearing your word, I pray that you would help us to walk in the faith of Abram as we too wait for our inheritance. Please. Please. Amen.